Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 66, I'm your host, Nicholas eaton Clark, and here we are again, time for more fantasy fiction. This week we start with a story called The One That Got Away by Mark Teppo, followed by a neat little bit of flash called The Sorcerer's Unattainable Garden by A. Merck Rustad. A bit about the author of The One That Got Away. Mark Teppo is publisher of Resurrection House, an independent genre publishing house. When he's not making books, he's writing them. He's written nearly a dozen novels ranging across a number of genres, and his latest effort is the non-fiction guide Jumpstart Your Novel. He lives in the Pacific Northwest with many books and one cat. Our narrator for this story is Matthew Fredrickson. Matthew is in his mid-thirties, living in Memphis, Tennessee, with a rock star plastic surgeon wife. He reads and writes and runs in his spare time. He loves to brew beer, and he'd love to make that his career. He will soon start the second season of his podcast, Freddy's Fan Fiction, and you can find him on Twitter as at Swami. So, here we have it. The One That Got Away by Mark Teppo. A haven for raconteurs and fabulists. The alibi room was a velvet-lined sanctuary where suggestion and persuasion were the watchwords, and truth was such a devalued coin that it couldn't purchase a condom from the dispenser in the men's room. Once through the unassuming door and the voluminous coat check where racks of costumes, disguise, and false uniforms waited, the patrons redrafted their pasts and invented possible futures. The promise of altered company meant that everyone— the regulars slouched on the narrow stools at the mahogany bar, the graceful and discreet staff, the liars grouped around lacquered tables or sprawled on plush couches, everyone could pretend the world beyond the rust-colored brick and the old-growth timber was the fantasy. The only reality that mattered 
was the invented one, wrapped in velvet drapery and limbed with orange light. The alibi, with its womb darkness and ambient embrace, held Colby tight, whispering gently to him with the forgotten white noise susurration of his mother's bloodstream. The alibi cared. The accounting analysis he did for Empire Financial Services had merit. His study on corporate paper waste was important. His solution, an aggressive recycling program, coupled with a carefully calculated ratio of premium bond paper for external communications to recycled pulp for daily consumption. The savings to the company would never be significant, barely two-thirds the salary of one accountant, but the paper reclamation would save several hundred acres every year. That won't be ignored, the alibi said to him. Someone would notice. Someone would call down to the fifth floor where the bean counters and money handlers worked their precarious magic. Someone would... Hey, Colby, your turn! Colby roused himself. What? Jack waved at the waitress, a slender girl with short pigtails and a Celtic tattoo curling around her wrist. Pay Jenny and tell us a story! Slowly extricating himself from the alibi's grip... Colby fumbled for his wallet. Thumbing through his cash like he was trying to separate blades of grass, he tried to think of a good lie. This was the way their game worked. Buy a round, tell a story, the others would be a receptive audience, alternately fueling the liar's tale or expressing mock outrage, false as everything else is the alibi. Colby tried to compose something as he fumbled a twenty out of his wallet, but all that he could think of was dead trees. Jenny smiled at him, an ivory gleam in the midnight of the room, and took his drunkenly offered bill. She spun around, her pigtails whipping against her lean neck, and smartly marched off to the infinitely distant bar. He stared at his wallet, his thumb and forefinger rubbing the corner of a second twenty-dollar bill. He couldn't think of a decent story, other than the one whispering in his ear, "'Your report will be a catalyst.' The voice was a lover's mistral, a persuasive wind that cajoled and seduced, telling him what his yearning heart wanted to hear. Like an organic infection that spreads to each tree, transferred through root and branch, the impact of the document would spread throughout the entire system. One branch, one nut, one sprout. Eventually the whole forest is changed. Deeper in his body, somewhere in the region of his gallbladder and the poison collecting in his liver, a different story was taking hold. No one cares. There was no short-term shareholder value in long-term ecological stewardship. On the tourist maps, the rounded hillock at the center of Windward Park was labeled Gloriana's Uprising. The name was an abandoned epitaph for a matriarch no one remembered— a truncated geological marker christened by a scientist who knew stone and rock, but not history. Glory, as the name was abbreviated by the locals, was a rounded mound, verdantly carpeted with wildflowers in the spring, a naked dome with splintered bones of ragged stone poking through in the winter. Stone lion heads, half buried, their mouths choked with long liana dotted with red flowers, ringed the base of the dome. In the previous spring, something broke beneath the uprising. Prosaically, it was a ruptured pipe, one of the heavy conduits that ran water from the recirculation plants along the coast, near Sweetlow, 
to the downtown corridor in Ludtown to the south beyond the industrial flats at Harbor Island. But at the alibi room, prosaic is unsustainable. Ancient wells, capped centuries ago when the land was barren of hand-tooled stone and shaped steel, had broken open in the wake of the latest seismic tremors that periodically raveled the silverware in dishes. Artisan waters, freed, sought a way out of their earthen prison. That spring, said the whispers at the alibi, the lions began to drool. By midsummer, the heads were vomiting, and the waters, long preserved beneath the scarred and tormented surface, were so pure they caused the plant life at the center of the park to erupt. The floral eruption spawned such a cloud of pollen and miasma of rotting fruit that strange creatures were drawn to the wild park, lured out of their hidden demas and secret valleys by the redolent paradise's scent. By the time the creeping honeysuckle began to grip the paint-flecked sign of the old Rialto Theater at the corner of Glacier and 17th, anecdotal sightings were part of the pub-speak at the alibi. Cats the size of huskies and black as a starless night, flying monkeys that clustered like ravens on the broken fire-escape railings, rabbits and gophers that walked upright, hypnotic serpents, exothermic lizards, slick-skinned nereids, birds that molted gold leaf. The stories grew more fanciful with each passing week, just as the green crept further and further into the houses and streets ringing the traditional boundary of the park. Winter froze the spread of the trees and vines, arresting their invasion of the brick and stone. The moon floated low over glory during the cold months, its icy gaze layering rime and ice on the rounded hump. Pathways to the heart of the park became blocked and redirected, hiding the frozen paradise so that it became a sanctuary for the strange creatures that had been drawn into the city. When the unicorn's side was pricked, it fled back to the hidden heart of glory. Blood spatter, stark and black against the frosted ground, was the precious trail that led the hunters through the icy maze of Windward Park. David knelt and touched the red smear on the whitened ground. His face nodded with disbelief and uncertainty. He showed his stained glove to the others. "'It's blood,' he said. Jack grunted as he reset his crossbow. "'I told you I winged it.' He fished another metal bolt out of the nylon pouch on his belt and slipped it into the groove of the stock. "'Winged what?' David asked. "'There was nothing—' His voice faltered as he smeared the blood between two fingertips, feeling the sticky lubricant slide between his gloved fingers. "'It was standing right here,' Jack said, pointing at the ground. Colby saw it, too. Colby hunched his shoulders as David looked at him. I saw something, he muttered. Looked like... A fucking unicorn, Jack interrupted. Come on, say it. You saw it. He mimed the presence of a protrusion from his forehead. You saw the horn. I don't know what I saw, Jack, Colby said. I mean, you were shooting at it before I could really be sure of what it was. "'Oh, that's such bullshit!' Jack scuffed the ground, throwing up a spray of ice slivers. He turned to the fourth man for support. "'Did you see it, Hurley?' Hurley, his gaze focused on David's stained gloves, swallowed heavily and shook his head. Colby noticed his hands were tight on the stock of his crossbow, and his breathing was shallow and quick. Jack shook his head. "'I know what I saw. It was all white, and its mane was like—' "'Glass! It was standing right here!' 
Colby looked at his feet instead of meeting Jack's fervent gaze. His eyes ached, and his tongue was thick and heavy. Words seemed like bricks, too unwieldy to shift with his fat tongue. You wanted this too, Colby. Jack's face had the feral gleam again. That focused rush of adrenaline talking. He crouched beside David and wiped his fingers through the spray of blood. He smeared unicorn blood across his forehead and down his cheeks. We could have come without you, but you're the one that wanted something more than just a made-up story for the alibi. You wanted something real. He stalked away, following an irregular path of crimson dots that led deeper into the park. David's eyes followed Jack, and Colby saw him register the irregular spatter that Jack was following. I didn't see anything, he said to Colby, his voice low enough that Jack couldn't hear it. Nothing but shadows. Shadows don't bleed, Hurley said, stepping close to the other two as if engaging them in a conspiracy. There was something there, wasn't there, Colby? Colby touched his throat, rubbed his gloved hand across the cold skin of his neck as if he was trying to massage out the stuck words. You did see something, David said, just like Jack. Colby nodded, still reluctant to speak of what he had seen. The unicorn had been nearly invisible against the backdrop of frosted tree trunks, but once Colby had been able to distinguish the difference between unicorn horn and tree branch, once he realized the distinction between ice-bleached bark and sleek hide, he had been able to see the creature without any difficulty. Jack's crossbow bolt had caught it high on the right hip. Colby had watched it rear, moonlight twisting its pearlescent horn, and he had almost closed his eyes, as if such a denial would undo what he had witnessed. Hurley arrived in time to pay for the next round of drinks. He gave a credit card to Jenny and then stared at the rocking motion of her backside as she walked away. "'Man, it's like clockwork,' he said, making a tick-tock noise with his mouth. "'I never get tired of watching that.' Jack and David laughed, an eager audience response to the laugh-now marquee powered by Hurley's ego and wit. A gregarious salesman, he was well on his way to becoming a florid man. His ready smile and loosely hinged jaw spread his features out toward his ears. His hands were large, engorged so as to stretch around the gravid circumference of his stomach, and his reach was like the open wingspan of a heron. "'You will not believe the day I've had,' Hurley started." When Colby, the designee to be vocally incredulous by virtue of being on Hurley's right, said nothing, he spread his hands wide like he was reaching to hug the entire table. It was pretty incredible. Jack dismissed Colby's vacant stare. Some report he turned in. Got him in a funk. Hurley's grin stretched as wide as his hands. Okay, so there's this executive assistant who works for the vice president of sales. I hear she's like 48 years old or something. You'd never believe it. Toned, tight, must spend four hours a day at the gym. Just an amazing piece of ass. Anyway, we're in the elevator today, coming back from some meeting on four. Just her and I, and she catches me sneaking a peek at her tits. Know what she says? She says, Take me back to your office and fuck me. Colby surfaced from his reverie, revenant rising from an ancient tomb drawn back to the table by Hurley's story. Hurley's smile faltered, real-time erosion stripping away the edge of a cliff. Hey, Colby, come on. You always tell the same story, Colby looked at the others, inspecting their faces for a sign that they, too, were aware of the persistent core of Hurley's tales. 
Aren't you tired of it? It's not the same, Hurley countered. Oh, what was last week's? Colby asked. An intern in the copy center who wanted to get copies of your dick? Was that it? And the week before, something about a car wash? Come on, Colby. We're at the alibi. David put a hand on his arm. Does it matter? Colby shoved his hand away, drunkenly missing the wrist and having to use his whole arm to push the other man away. Yeah, maybe. Maybe if we're going to lie to each other, to ourselves, we might as well be a little better at it. Who pissed in his drink? Hurley groused. No, damn it, I'm serious. Aren't we getting a little old for this? How long are we going to keep coming here and telling the same banal lies? I thought that was the point, Jack raised an eyebrow. What are we hiding from? Colby countered. Jack reached for his drink. Well, Colby, since you're the one pissing in the stories, why don't you tell us? What are we... What are you hiding from? The room lurched beneath Colby, as if Jack's words were punctuated by a quake. Tremors rumbling through the man-made bluff of the city's edge, threatening to calve off the alibi room and throw it down into the bay. A muscle in Colby's cheek twitched as if he had just been stung by a wasp. Does it matter? Does any of it matter? An existential black hole lurked in wait for him. The velvet womb of the alibi tried to hide him from this pit, tried to keep him from spilling into the limitlessness of... Nothing, he muttered. Then quit spoiling it for everyone else. So... Are you a virgin? Hurley asked Colby as they walked along the path beneath the frozen branches. Excuse me? Colby said. Hurley stopped and put his hand on Colby's arm to slow him down. You know the stories. The unicorn can only be snared by those who are innocent of sin. You know, virginal maids sitting out under trees waiting for the unicorn to come lay its head in their lap. Maybe that's why they were bait. They could see the animal. He shrugged. Ergo, since you can see it, does that mean you're a virgin? Colby looked at the ice-fused branches of the poplars and birch overhead. As a child, he had chased squirrels in the park, laughingly pursuing them into the thickets of trees until they darted up the knotted trunks. It had been a long time, but he remembered always seeing the sky, blue through the partially interlocked puzzles of the leaves, now winter linked the trees in the awkward embraces of estranged cousins at family funerals. It was like being inside a cathedral, a sacred place where confessions were heard and one's holy worth was considered. Are you a virgin? Are you worthy of God's embrace? Suddenly colder, his spine reacting to an impression, a latent memory that was more instinct than personal recollection, Colby shivered and looked away from the dome of ice. Ahead of them... David and Jack tracked the unicorn's trail, eyes watching for the chaotic pattern of each successive spatter. Listen, Hurley said. It's not a big deal if you are, but... What about Jack? Colby interrupted, indicated the two men ahead of them. Is he a virgin too? Hurley opened and closed his mouth several times. Maybe. I don't know. By your argument, non-virgins can't see the unicorn, which would explain why long-time studs like you and David can't see it. You're blind because you shook your dicks at too many girls over the years. Is that how it works? It's just an idea, 
Colby cut Hurley off with an abrasive laugh. Maybe I've not had the office romances that you've had, but I lost my virginity when I was fifteen, Hurley, and I've slept with a few women since then. Fine, Hurley snapped. You got a better explanation? We should be asking Jack. He seems to be the resident expert. Right, Hurley snorted. David would know better. He's been hunting. What? Maybe that's what it is. Hurley grabbed Colby's arm. Listen, maybe it's like that theory that every story is augmented and changed with every telling. You know, like that game we did in school as kids when we'd all line up and the teacher would whisper something to the first kid. He'd pass it along to the next kid and to the next and the next on down the line. And the last kid says aloud what he's told, and it's always different. Maybe the myth of the unicorn is the same thing. After all these generations of telling the story, the details have gotten muddled. Maybe it's not about being a virgin, but about being innocent. Innocent? How? You've ever been hunting, Colby? Have you ever killed anything? No. Jesus, Hurley, Colby grimaced. Never even held a crossbow before tonight. Right. And David and I have. He's taken me bow hunting with him a couple of times. This isn't my first time. But that would mean that Jack is innocent, too. Colby glanced at the receding pair, until he found his quarry again, until they caught up with the wounded animal. His chest tightened as if a python was squeezing his ribs. What happens to the unicorn if we kill it? Hurley hefted his crossbow, getting a better grip of the stock. His eyes were bright and clear, unstained by alcohol. Maybe that's when it becomes visible again. Maybe that's the only way the rest of us will ever see it. The waitress replenished their drinks, removing the ice-filled glasses as if she was clearing the detritus of an expired ceremony. The four men made no eye contact with one another for a moment. Their faces turned in random directions like a quartet of demagnetized compasses. The foursome, cast adrift from their collective mood by Colby's outburst, sought other distractions. Hurley stared after the waitress. David grew fascinated with the play of light on the half-moon of his fingernails. Colby's eyes roved around the room as he tried to pretend he didn't feel the feral burn of Jack's gaze. "'Are you tired of listening to us, Colby?' Jack asked. "'Is it too much of an effort to have a beer and play along for a few hours? Have we bored you that badly?' Colby stared at his glass, unwilling to raise his head. "'I'm just tired,' he said. "'Long week. It's got nothing to do with anything.' "'Yeah, nothing. Is that the whole problem? You woke up this morning and realized just how empty your life is. When was the last time you got a decent raise? Or had a date? What friends do you have outside the four of us?' Are you still living in that shithole in Parkway, or did you ever manage to save enough for a deposit on a place across the bridge? Each question was a psychic blow that collapsed more of his body. His lungs grew tighter, his stomach knotted, his throat constricted to a tiny hole. Each question externalized an interior complaint Colby had been fighting, had been dismissing this last quarter as he'd been focusing on his report, as if everything would be resolved with the release of his findings as if his document was a life-affirming manifesto instead of a study in paper consumption. Jack's questions were delivered as if he was trying to push Colby to the existential blackness that filled the void beyond the inconsequential truth of his report. Colby tried to brush them off, tried to dismiss them with a wave of his hand. "'Forget it,' he said. 
He struggled to get out of the plush comfort of the chair. I'm done. I'm heading home. You need to do something, Jack said. Something real. Jump out of an airplane, race a motorcycle, something like that. Colby paused, one arm partially snared in his coat. Against his better judgment, he turned and looked down at Jack. Now? Why not? Colby had a show of looking around the room. Because it's the middle of the night. Because I... Because you're scared? Because it's easier to talk about doing something than actually doing it? Because you'd rather bitch about us telling the same old stories than actually go out and make a new one? No. It's just an excuse, Colby. Whatever you're going to say, it's just a lame excuse to do nothing again. Colby flushed. He showed... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Put his remaining arm in his coat. What the fuck do you care? Because I think you're right. Because Hurley does the same damn story every time, and I'm sick of it, too. But is that his fault? Is anything we fail to do here any fault but our own? Jesus, Jack, Hurley snorted, stung by his words. Colby's tongue was dry, and he licked his lips as if to find moisture on them. What did he have in mind? Jack smiled. There's a unicorn in Windward Park. Hurley laughed. Ha! <laughs> Shit, that's a good one, Jack. When the others looked at him, What? That's a good setup for a story. Giving us all grief for being boring and then hitting us with... He faltered. What? You believe him? David nodded. I heard it too. From someone else. Oh, and that makes it true. Hurley shook his head and reached for his drink. Everyone could be telling the same lie here. That doesn't make it true. Jack was still staring at Colby. So let's go find out. If you're so eager for something true and hard and honest, then let's go. Let's go out there right now and find it. Why? Colby asked. The only word he could manage. Why not? That's not a reason. Isn't it? 
Jack raised his chin toward the wall behind Colby. David and Hurley have enough hunting gear to outfit all of us. Let's go bag ourselves a unicorn and get the head stuffed. Mount it right there on the wall behind you so no one forgets. He laughed and looked at the others, spearing them with the fervent gleam in his eyes. Fuck the stories. Let's go make our own. The ground was slick and icy near the lion statue, and Colby nearly fell. His hip caught on the angry mouth of the statue where he regained his balance, leaning against the cold stone for support. Behind him, Jack was shouting incoherently, giving voice to the bloom of pain from the shattered bones in his shoulder. The unicorn thundered up Glory's slope, its hooves crackling against the frosted hillock. Colby pressed himself against the stone lion, stealing a glance up slope as the animal passed. Silver twinkled in its mane, its horn a glittering spike. Blood streamed down its white flank from Jack's earlier crossbow bolt. "'Where is it?' Hurley was in a panic. "'Where the fuck is it?' "'Look for Jack's bolt!' David shouted. Standing in the open meadow at the base of glory, he sighted carefully through the sights of his crossbow. "'The experienced hunter,' Colby thought, transfixed by David's patience, waiting for his prey to come into range. The unicorn charged down the slope past Colby, head lowered. But he can't see it. David squinted and fired. The unicorn flipped its head up, horn rising. The metal bolt struck sparks, a cascade of falling stars as it ricocheted off the hard horn. Galloping past the stunned hunter, the unicorn dipped its horn down. David spun, trailing a thin arc of crimson, and then he was face down on the ground. Hurley hesitated, caught between trying to do something for Jack's shattered shoulder and his fallen friend. Colby found himself wondering how surreal the scene must be for the florid salesman. First, Jack had been knocked down and trampled, and now David, throat cut, was a crumpled shape on the white ground. All the while, Hurley hadn't seen the animal that had dropped two of his companions. Like fighting a ghost. The unicorn wheeled near the tree line and pounded back across the field. Colby braced his back against the cold statue as the animal charged towards him. His crossbow lay on the ground not far from him, but he didn't dare move from the statue, as if he could meld himself into the stone and disappear. The unicorn pulled up short of Colby, rearing back on its hind legs. Up close, its hooves were huge and flashed like the blade of a headsman's axe. The blood streaking its flank made its ribs appear like dusty shadows under its pale skin. Its eyes were stark and white with panic, and its chest heaved like massive bellows. Colby was sucked into the winter whiteness of the unicorn's eyes, suddenly pulled into a pure void bereft of shadow and darkness. As the animal towered over him, the panic and fear flowed out of Colby as if a plug had been pulled out of him and all the emotional tension was draining out of his body. He was floating in the opaque purity of the unicorn's gaze, and instead of being lost against this background, he was a single dot upon the white sea, a nut, a seed a catalyst. The unicorn blinked, a shuddering of souls, and Colby snapped back into his own body. The animal lowered its horn, not as an antagonist, but as a gesture of recognition and kindness, of understanding. Colby raised his hand, his fingers reaching for the tip of the unicorn's horn. The unicorn bleated and took a drunken step to Colby's left, and he saw the fresh crossbow bolt jutting from its side just behind its shoulder. Jack, leaning against Hurley, lowered his crossbow, a triumphant grin working through the pain racking his face. The animal staggered on the uneven slope of glory. 
It shook its head, twisting its neck in an effort to see what was biting its flesh. Colby took a step toward the wounded creature, hands still outstretched. He reached for the bolts jutting out of its sides instead of the horn. If he could just touch the bolt, he could draw it out before the unicorn expired. He could stop the flow of blood. The unicorn's front legs buckled, and it fell heavily against the slope. Its head lolled on a weak neck, and Colby laid a hand on the heaving animal's flank. The skin was hot and slicked with sweat. "'Get out of the way, Colby!' Jack shouted. He had Hurley's crossbow and was pointing it at Colby and the unicorn. The tip of the bolt shivered as Jack's adrenaline-charged muscles twitched and jumped. With a clarity like the white field he had seen in the unicorn's eye, Colby knew Jack would fire. If he tried to block Jack's shot, his sacrifice would be a fruitless one. Jack, or Hurley, would just reload again and fire, unobstructed. The unicorn snorted behind him, a sighing exhalation like a furnace expiring. Colby started to turn his head to look at the animal, and his gaze fell on his discarded crossbow. The bolt was still in place, ready to fire. "'Colby?' Jack started, a grim finality in his voice. Colby scrambled for his crossbow, scooping it off the ground. He lifted it with one hand and pulled the trigger. Jack quivered as the bolt struck him, his expression softening into something akin to dismay. The tip of his weapon drooped, and he coughed. Blood spattered the feathers of his bolt, and his face crumbling with a weak cry, he stared down at the metal bolt sticking out of his chest. He tried to look at Hurley, but his knees failed, and he fell. The unicorn blew air again, struggling to its feet. Its head drooped and its knees were locked, but it remained upright. To Colby, it was already fading, opaque through the withers, crystalline shine bleeding through its tail and mane. I'll never see it again, he realized. Hurley was reloading the crossbow Jack had given him. Colby did the same. That's a pretty sad story. Jenny tugged on a pigtail, hair woven through the tangle of her long fingers. Colby's mouth was dry from the telling, as if the words had all dried up in his throat. I've heard a lot of unicorn stories recently. That's the popular meme right now, but that one... She shrugged. It's different. Most of what I hear are tales of wish-fulfillment. You know, sex stories for stunted adolescents. Colby nodded. Yeah, she clucked her tongue once, punctuated the thought, and tapped her tray against her leg. So, seriously, are your friends going to be joining you tonight? Colby thought of glory, of the blood and innocence that had fallen there. In the spring, he realized, when the frost broke and the green started its assault on the city again, a different sort of recycling program would begin. Born of a single catalytic moment. One thought, one shot. The rest was simply the way the story spun itself out. Nope. I'm the only one. Okay, I will admit to a tear or two listening to that one. Personal attitudes to hunting aside, I was rooting for the unicorn, weren't you? Anyhow. Moving right along, our flash is a dreamy take on a well-known theme, The Sorcerer's Unattainable Garden, by A. Merck Rustad. Merck is a robot in disguise, who lives in the Midwest United States. Between college, filmmaking, and playing video games, Merck writes stuff. Their fiction has appeared before in daily science fiction, as well as flash fiction online, 
Sygentacy and Idiomancer. You can visit Merck at their website or find them on Twitter at Merck underscore Rustad. Narrating it for us is Cynthia Colby. Cynthia is a Canadian voice artist who spent 15 years as a radio news announcer. Her voice was so flexible that she began doing commercials at the radio stations and her ability for doing character voices was recognized. Now, as a freelance voice artist and scriptwriter, she lends her voice to numerous short stories, books, game characters, training programs, videos, commercials, phone answering services, and accessible websites. She can be reached by using the email address on the triple F. Enjoy this one, it's a doozy. Here is The Sorcerer's Unattainable Garden by A. Merck Rustad. Wrought iron fences loop around the gardens, six deep, the outer three progressively higher, more elaborate, and with more spikes atop, while the inner three create a mirror effect. Say you make it over all six fences without impaling yourself or falling, or getting trapped between bars that suddenly constrict or twist or move. Say you avoid the fourth fence, the electric one, or the second one with the poisoned varnish, or the sixth one with a taste for blood. Once upon a time, a sorcerer lost their shadow in a bet with a magician. The bet itself is unimportant. Shadowless, the sorcerer wandered the world until, unexpectedly, they found a shadow whose person had been lost to a bet with a sea witch long ago. If you make it past all six fences, then you reach the first garden. It's a great circular loop of hawthorn and foxglove hedging that has no convenient holes or doors. The hedge speaks with a rusty, gravelly, morbid voice. Its cadence is so slow that you forget the first word before you hear the third one. The hedge asks riddles like hedges are wont to do in a sorcerer's garden. And if you get it wrong, the gophers eat you. The sorcerer and the unattached shadow fell in love. Can we stay together forever? asked the shadow, twined with the sorcerer under the autumn stars, and the sorcerer said, Yes. The sorcerer did not intend to lie. But let's say you answer the riddle which no one has been able to guess for sixty-five years, and the hedge opens just enough for you to squeak through with lacerations on your sides and foxglove pollen infecting the cuts. Then you reach the second circle, a rose garden. What the shadow did not know was that, once upon a time, the sorcerer made a bet with a demon and lost. The bet itself is unimportant. The wager was the sorcerer's happiness. As soon as the sorcerer found true joy, the demon came to collect. Roses of every color imagined or not imagined fill the garden. The air is so thick with fragrance that you get high with the first breath and overdose with the second. But let's say you can hold your breath, or you brought a mask. You hear the roses speaking. Not riddles, of course, because the roses are too polite to infringe on the hedge's territory. What the roses say is, Eat you, eat you, 
eat you. And then they will, of course. Roses need fertilizer just like any other plant. Your bones might become thorns for the next bushes that sprout, if you're fortunate. And if you're even luckier, one of the yellow roses will drink your soul instead of the red ones. And if you're especially tasty, it won't even hurt. The sorcerer said to the shadow, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean for this to happen. To look on the shadow brought only grief to them both. So the sorcerer banished the shadow. Because once a sorcerer makes a bet, they cannot go back on the wager. Shadows can't weep. But let's say you don't get eaten by the roses. The circle you find yourself in next is a lightless tower that goes downward and never up. Chains spun from hanged men's gurgles crisscross the stairs that don't really exist. Beware of the ivy along the walls, for it grows on memory until your mind is choked and full of leaves and roots dig out through your skin and you forget why you came and you sit there forever and forever and forever and the shadow found itself in a glacier the ice the shadow absorbed melted and dripped down the shadow's face and it looked at its hands and clenched them into fists and said i will find you again love somewhere on the other side of the world the sorcerer heard the shadow's words and despaired but let's say that you don't trip over non-existent steps and fall into the abyss, and you bring herbicide for the ivy. The shadow traveled the world alone, becoming a master of disguise, a jack-of-all-trades. No cost was too great to acquire what was needed. The shadow absorbed knowledge and languages and magic, and shut away grief so deep it forgot for a time that it was there. Then the shadow learned how to hunt demons. The second to last circle is made of bubbles, translucent spheres summoned from the essence of death itself, for death has always had a whimsical side. If you pop one, it swallows you, compressing your lungs, siphoning your blood, unraveling your nervous system, grinding your bones into dust. There is no space between the bubbles through which to pass. On the other side of the world, the sorcerer put all their skill into making an unattainable fortress. Circles of gardens no one can ever penetrate. There will be no more bets and no more loss. And in their self-made prison, the sorcerer sits alone. One day, the sorcerer hopes, they will fade from memory, so the shadow may mourn and perhaps one day find peace again. But let's say you brought needles to prick the bubbles ever so carefully and catch the pieces of death in a lead-lined pouch. When you carve a path through this circle, you find a simple wooden door that asks for a password. If you answer wrong, the door will never have existed. But you answer heart, and it opens. The shadow laid a delicious trap for the demon. Freshly picked souls, harvested from the tree at the center of the world. The demon approached, 
feet soundless on the ice floors the shadow drifted on. What game shall we play for this luscious prize? the demon asked, and the shadow said, No game. I'm here to kill you. Let's say you make it into the final circle, the one made of plain stone. The shadow lunged, a lasso made from an angel sinew in one hand, and in the other a poniard forged in the eventual heat death of the universe. The demon screamed as the angel sinew snared tight around its neck. The demon's form flickered through every horrendous shape it knew, yet it couldn't escape the noose. You hurt the one I love, the shadow said. I do not care for that. The demon howled for mercy. Shadows are neither merciful nor cruel, except when they are. With the poniard, the shadow cut out the demon's guts, and in the steaming entrails found every item the demon had stolen with tricks or dice or cards. The demon withered into flakes of ash and sank into the frigid sea-salt waters. The shadow gently scooped up what it had sought for so long, trembling, hoping it was not too late. There are no traps or puzzles or illusions here. This garden is brick, lopsided piles of brown and red and gray stone in no discernible pattern. The sorcerer sits in the middle heap, alone except for the bones. Oh, yes, of course there are bones. Don't ask what they're from. The sorcerer is a thin, hunched person of no specific gender, dressed in a blue habit sewn from fish scales. Dull eyes, bones sharp against slack skin. Building an unattainable garden takes its toll on a body. Why did you come? the sorcerer says. There's deep tiredness in that voice. So much pain. You will only find sorrow here. I know. You sit beside the sorcerer, your love, and unzip your ribs. Tucked under your heart is a small oak box, plain and unvarnished. You offer it to the sorcerer. I brought this for you. Their hands shake as they open the box. Inside, wrapped in turquoise tissue paper, is the sorcerer's stolen happiness. They let out a small gasp of shock. <gasps> How? You press a finger against the sorcerer's lips. Later, please take it. You've hoped since the moment you found the wrought iron gates that the sorcerer will not refuse. If the sorcerer says no, you're finished. The sorcerer folds the paper aside for later use. How long has it been? Too, too long. I don't remember. The sorcerer's voice catches in their throat. They turn away. Why did you come? I want you back. You wait, trembling. There is nowhere else to go. Please come back, love. I will help you laugh again. I will make you strong. One day we will tear down these unattainable gardens and walk free. I am here because I need you. Unsaid, please don't banish me to loneliness forever. The sorcerer shuts their eyes. 
then, with quivering hands, replaces the happiness inside them. A shudder ripples through the sorcerer's frame, and they press their face against your shoulder. You stroke their hair and wait. I'm so sorry, the sorcerer says, over and over and over. You wrap yourself around them and hold them close, for now you are safe from wandering magicians and cunning sea witches and unsatisfied demons. It will be all right, love, you whisper, because shadows never lie. And for the first time since they built this labyrinth, the sorcerer smiles. <laughs> Didn't I tell you? Great. Thanks, Merck. Just as an aside, we here at Farfetched Fables couldn't succeed without your support. As you know, we are an all-volunteer show. We put this together each week for the love of the stories and the joy of sharing them with you, just like our sister podcast, Tales to Terrify, which is in dire straits at the moment. So, if you like what you hear at Farfetched Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The buttons are on the website. Your donations help to keep the servers humming along each week. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which, simply put, means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it and don't sell it, and be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. And if you decide to hunt a unicorn this week, just don't. Okay? Have a drink instead. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.